Are you here? No doubt about it, you are here and you're tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to our episode, my friends, my friends. It truly is an honor to welcome Jim Sonnefeld, a writing and touring musician and one of the biggest selling rock bands around, Hootie and the Blowfish. He's also the author of the new book, Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. Published by Diversion Books. A solo recording artist, Jim Sonnefeld, recently released a faith-inspired EP entitled Remember Tomorrow. Real quick, help a brother out. Go to YouTube, subscribe to The Paul Leslie Hour, and remember, ding, ding, ring the bell. And remember, The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by viewers and listeners like you. Simply visit thepaulleslie.com slash support. Bingo. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the interview with Jim Sonnefeld on location at beautiful Hampton Park in Charleston, South Carolina. Hello, everyone. We are here in Hampton Park, beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. I am with Jim Sonnefeld drummer, vocalist, recording artist, member of Hootie and the Blowfish, and now author. Well, Jim, thank you so much. It's so good to sit down with you. Glad to be here. Not a bad day to sit outside <laughs> and have a chat. You could not ask for a better day, especially for shooting outside. Oh, this is great. This is great. This is why I stayed in the South. What does is, what is Charleston, this area, mean to you? I've been coming to Charleston since the mid-70s was the first time I ever saw this place. And we came down on a few family vacations out to the beach. It was quite a small, dare I say, insignificant uh, beach town and, and historical town at the time in the 70s. It was a little dirty. It was uh, There weren't like super nice things to do necessarily. And it's grown a lot through the years. So for me, it's got a little old feeling of coming down as a little kid to go run around on the beach but to have seen it grown is nice to see our small state sort of uh get wings and charleston in particular become something special for a lot of people from a lot of other places what has always been the purpose the drive of the art that you create at the beginning, for me, it was just to express. I was, I say, born a drummer. I tapped, and as you probably heard before we went live, I just, I mean, there's always a drum beat going out of my head, and I can't really turn it off. And uh, so as a kid, I just wanted to express, and eventually, I think my parents, thinking it might be cheaper than therapy, they got me drum lessons. <laughs> so I was able to uh, sort of contain that that rhythm thing and, and hone it in, and I drummed until I was 21 and that was when I first joined a band and it was in joining that first band called Bachelors of Art up in Columbia, South Carolina that I fell in love with the idea of interacting with other people and how you come up with melodies and lyrics and uh, cohesiveness with three or four people working together and uh, though I only stayed in that band for a year, year and a half and went back to finish my college degree I knew that was something I wanted to do when I could finish college and finish what was my soccer 
dream at the time. So to me, it's always been just an expression. I like to do it. It makes me feel good somewhere inside, whether I'm mimicking somebody else's uh, artwork that they've already created or uh, making up my own. It doesn't matter. And then eventually, I guess along the way, I realized there is the business of art. There is the <laughs> business of music. And that inserts something that can be okay or it can make things run downhill or dark as i say because <laughs> the business and the art aren't always friends and they're not even natural bedfellows uh so eventually the business of music came into my head where oh i can make money i can sell this or make it a living I, all these ideas come in uh and this was sometime after i'd already been you know drumming and learning a little acoustic guitar and piano uh so i've dealt uh with these two things fighting for and against each other through the years, music and business. Hmm. I think that something that is fascinating to me is the way a song that the whole world knows can come together. It's just, it's something that's fascinating to me that something that somebody writes on a piece of paper or they, they are noodling around on a guitar or playing the piano could one day be heard by so many people. Hmm. When you have something that came up, you know, you, you, you made it up and it's heard by so many people. Is that something that you ever get over the awe of? Uh, it, it certainly will keep you coming back <laughs> <laughs> like a great golf shot on, on the last hole of a round or, uh, you know, just some great experience that makes you realize this is a fantastic uh, arrangement I have with the thing I'm doing, be it a sport or a relationship or, in this case, art. You create something sort of out of thin air, but really it's probably based on things you've borrowed or stolen <laughs> from other artists. And when it takes hold and people are repeating it, whether they're you know, singing it or, or buying copies of it, you feel part of other people. You feel like a connection that's hard to describe. And I think innately... I seek that connection. That's what feeds me. And so I've found it in various ways through creating music, uh, now through creating a book. I've found it through uh, spirituality, uh, be it uh, a group of people striving to understand and have peace. There's a lot of different ways I think it's uh, achievable. But, you know, when you hear and see people out in an audience who've paid a couple bucks to, to see you and they're singing along with something you created, that's just nothing like that. Hmm. And the bigger the numbers get, the crazier that feeling and that nourishment becomes. You're in front of 500 people or 1,000 or 100,000. You know, it gets to be uh, overwhelming. But uh, we've certainly enjoyed that feeling. What would you say affects your heart the most? What, what moves you more? Is it the words, the poetry of a song, or is it the music, the melody? Uh it can be both, to not answer that question <laughs> definitively. I'll say there are at times lyrics that confound me and uh, scare me or inspire me, drive me to tears because I understand exactly what they're saying or maybe because I don't understand exactly what they're saying and that uh, puts me in a different place. And so I've had lyrics do that to me. Uh, sometimes music can be so beautiful 
and it's sort of the way it uh, has dynamics and builds and then gets quiet. Sometimes music, there's some great instrumental music out there that I love. But I tell you, the moment where they happen together is the moment for me. Hmm. And there are some artists that do it quite well where they have either spontaneously or through a uh, contrived effort learned how to say a significant thing while there's a music build. And when they crescendo, it's like you just want to fly, you just want to jump. And, and so there are some bands that inspired me even as a young child. They were doing these things at the same time. One of the guys that I think does it maybe best continuously is Bruce Springsteen. And whether you love him or not, he gets his audience to a moment with a word and a melody and some continue, you know, combined rise that like sends people through the stratosphere. And I've experienced that with him. He's, he's one of a bunch of people that can do it. But if we're ever lucky enough to do it ourselves and give that people that feeling, that's, that's pretty cool too. Well, you mentioned Springsteen. Can you name a couple of other people that as far as songwriting, they really inspired you? Uh, you know, weirdly, something that really inspired me as a child, and though I grew up in northern Illinois, we listened to a ton of southern rock. And it became, now we listen to other things too, but I realized recently, looking back, that, you know, uh, Charlie Daniels Band and the Outlaws and Leonard Skinnerd and ZZ Top and Marshall Tucker Band, these were bands that I, like, just wore out the LPs or the tapes or whatever we had in the 70s. And so they were inspirational. And sometimes I didn't know exactly what they were singing about, but they had that thing where they could crescendo the music and the lyric together for me and uh, became, I guess, anthemic would be the, the fair word. But, you know, later on and uh, experimenting with different types of music, lots of classic rock does that for me. And Southern rock, I think, sort of grew out of the classic rock era. Uh, but there's, uh, gosh, U2 can do it. They've got some anthem stuff that's really strong. One of my favorite albums we were just talking the other day is about songs that influence you was a instrumental album. And it was Jean-Pierre Rampal and Claude Bowling doing a suite for piano and flute. And I listened to it in college. A teacher turned me on to it. And it's still to this day I can turn that on and it makes me just want to dance. And I don't know how to dance. It makes me want to, like just vacuum an entire house in a spring day and I don't even like doing that but it gives me a feeling and an energy so uh, yeah there you go I was talking to my wife who's from Eastern Europe and she she said what is Hootie and the Blowfish and I said <laughs> wait a second I'm gonna play something for you so I started playing hold my hand and she's like ah. and then it got to the chorus and she said oh yeah of course Hilarious. Yeah, I, I know this song. Talking to Dave, our friend, uh, on the way over here, he asked a question. I thought, well, this is a great question. I'm going to ask Jim. What do you attribute the success and the universality of that song? Well, it perhaps does what I've been describing, where a lyric meets a melody meets a rise in the volume of the instruments being played at a time. And it's a perfect rise to give you that optimum feeling of just belief in, in that word, in that moment. And I think that song did that. And, and the messaging, of course, can be a lot of things to achieve that. But I think a message like that I wrote for Hold My Hand was about 
the connection of people and, and listen, we, we got to help each other here. There's people suffering and we might even be those people. What can we do best to sort of uh, help each other? And that was the idea I had when I, when I was writing that. And so I think that idea of connection is probably what helps that song along. It does not hurt to have Darius Rucker and his gritty, textured, beautiful voice singing that particular melody. I think that's a, a driving point that can't be uh, forgotten. Uh, the vocal and the vocalist matters. You know, the, the deliverer of that message matters. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's those, those couple of things that we uh, were lucky enough to put together. And, and also, frankly, a, a machine behind a song to get it out there to the masses is really important. Speaking of the business or the art, you know, there's not a lot of songs that didn't have some help to get in front of a lot of people. And so we had a little help at the same time that well, we had been performing Hold My Hand for probably four or five years before we got into a, a business machine that could help us bring it to more people. But, you know, that machine really helps a big amount of people experience that feeling that we're talking about. So we, we had the benefit of that in 1994. So tell us about the transition from writing songs like you do to writing a book. There's this book out you wrote this book, Swimming with the Blowfish. What a title. <laughs> was it an easy transition to write a book? Well, uh, the only pr problem was the length of time to get so many words, the length of time to understand how to develop uh, a few sentences into a paragraph that was meaningful and how that paragraph is has to be part of a bigger body uh, called a chapter. And I had little experience in doing that. So while I could tell some stories and I had some stories to tell, uh, it was, it's writing and then continuing to write. And then when you don't think you have anything else to write, write some more. And that's not how you write a song. To me, uh, uh, the process of going back and editing and having other people look at your work, your paragraphs and your chapters and comment on them to, to structure them. That is never something that has to happen with a, with a little three and a half minute pop song. And, you know, hold my hand, for instance, was one of those lucky moments where, you know, you're writing it. It's sort of coming out naturally. I didn't have to run it by anybody. It felt like, wow, this, this just feels right. And like a simple nursery rhyme, it's not complicated to write two verses and a chorus. And repeat it a few times. It's not the most complicated work of liter, uh, literary uh, genius, but uh, something has to happen. There's something, you know, the magic in the air, or like I said, the production or the singer who's the vessel that's bringing it out. So I, I you know, writing little songs is just so much easier, <laughs> and it makes me appreciate that uh, a, a, a three-minute pop song or or whatever is is a nice way to be able to make a living so i should i should keep doing that <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody reads this book swimming with the blowfish is there something you want the reader to get from that experience there's not anything i want the reader to get in particular from the experience um i hope it's something that makes them think uh or maybe uh, uh, consider their own experience 
on this planet, but I didn't like set it out for them to think a certain thing. I like, in fact, some advice I got while I was editing. I worked with two different editors during the, the process, and some of it was to take away a lot of the material because it was too long. Another editor was to add material and develop material that was already there to make it longer. And uh, uh, so part of the process was uh, I had to I had written a bunch of stuff, and it was about it's probably too, leaning too heavily on my what I thought about what was happening in my life and my feelings and and talking about the thing that was happening. And one of the editors said, "Don't don't tell the people what's happening, or don't don't tell them what you think about what's happening. You just write the action of what happened, and then it's going to be up the, to them to decide hmm. how it makes them feel. And it made me feel so naked. It made me feel like." Wait, I can't do that. Hmm. I need to tell them how it made me feel. And he said, no, we don't want them. They have to, to be able to decide how they feel when you write the thing that you did, whether it was in your childhood or with Hooting the Blowfish or on stage or anything. It's up to them to derive a feeling or an emotion from the action that you've written. And I had to go back and I stumbled on that the entire book writing process, I tell hmm. you. I mean, yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I would love people to love it. I would love right. people to think it's riveting. It has captured their heart. It's going to change their lives for the better. But really, I'm just telling a story and, and hope they're emotionally moved in some way. Hmm. He, and, and as the editor said, they may decide, well, this guy's kind of a prick. Or he seems <laughs> kind of self-centered. Or, gosh, does he ever think about anybody else? I have to allow other people to come up with their own ideas on, on my stories. Make your statement and let them decide. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of, yeah, it's not my first idea of <laughs> how to write a book. I would prefer to tell them everything and let them know how I need them to feel. And that maybe is perhaps self-centered. So, Well, you know, it, when you do an interview like this in public, you, you just never know uh, when somebody is going to stop in on yeah. you. Uh, like, for example, there was a duck who, who almost came into the shot, but we'll see. But that make, that does make me wonder. Thank you to that duck for coming on. When somebody comes up to you and they recognize you, is that experience weird for you? Or have you gotten used to just through the years of being a performer? Yeah, it's been a roller coaster of understanding how to deal with that. It's nothing you can prepare for when you first... Uh, gain attention or fame so I didn't know how to deal with it at, at, at first I did we all did the best we could um, but I've gone through periods of realizing it is best to be graceful no matter what the person is bringing because there's any variety of uh, uh, fans or people who recognize you for any reason and they might be uh, calm they might be excitable they might be obnoxious they might be unruly. There's a lot of things, but all of them, I think, I've, I've tried to navigate how to best deal with it in a graceful manner. And so at the beginning, with the band getting famous, obviously you're excited that people are giving you attention because they love the music you've been making for years. Mm. And finally there's bunches of people. And I frankly loved that attention for many years to the point where when it got really big and then it started getting smaller again, that I was wondering uh, how I was going to deal with that. I, I missed the attention. My sort of inflated ego was struggling. 
where did all the people go? Why aren't, I, why aren't they recognizing me? Or when we got really big and our singer Darius became sort of the face of the band, mm. my gosh, why are they giving him so much attention? Why, why aren't they looking at me? And yeah. I can look back and look at interviews and videos and where I'm trying to get attention. To, you know, if you're Darius oh. and I'm me and all the attention's on Darius, I'm like I'm trying to nudge my way in there because <laughs> my ego is telling me, you deserve more, you need more. Eventually... I got great advice from a wise friend uh, who would help me uh, collaborate in making my first solo record in 2007. His name is Francis Dunnery. And uh, I had a lot of changes going on in my life at the time, sobriety, spirituality, and we were sitting down to make my first record, and Francis says, he says, Sonic is what he, what he called me. We're going to do something which is going to be part of your spiritual journey. And I'm like looking at him a little scared, like, oh, God, this guy's crazy. I know he's going to suggest something wacko. And he says, he looks at me in my long blonde hair. He says, we're going to shave that shit off right now. <laughs> I'm like, what? And talk about being faced with knowing if you shave that thing off, that is how people recognize you. What is going to happen? Are you going to be able to deal with that? That was a big move. And I trusted wow. him. And I shaved it off. And it was the best thing I did. It was the best thing I did because it allowed me to decide who am I from the heart out, mm. not from the glossy exterior that I want you to think is important. And that was the beginning of uh, understanding of me, me on a different level. And um, it, it, the question of how do you deal with people giving you attention? Well, I didn't have to w deal with that for about <laughs> eight years because no one recognized me and it huh. was a beautiful thing i really relished the fact that i could start discovering who am i without the attention that's an important question for someone who's had attention anyway i uh got through that and today on the streets if somebody recognized me it's more awkward for my family than me huh. i know how to deal with it gracefully and try and give people maybe what they're asking for as long as it's not weird, <laughs> and sometimes it's just a brief conversation. And hmm, interesting. Would you say that there is a greatest gift that has come from sobriety? Yeah, the greatest gift I think is associated with that. Uh, uh, what we were just talking about it was getting to know who I am and what makes me tick, and and maybe more than learning. What society often tells us to do, which is, you know, figure out your strengths and don't let people see you weak. And some of these ideas, my sobriety ended up teaching me something very different, which was it taught me what my weaknesses and my limitations uh, and by pointing out some of my failures. And that allowed me to navigate better the the obstacle course of life going forward. And that's more valuable than thinking I'm strong or being super confident. I mean, there's value to those things, but what's better than to see where I might tend to get off track or, or slip and fall or come up short. That's what I want to know out in the obstacle course of life. So my sobriety over time, the process of, of continuing to, to practice recovery, it did that for me and allowed me to see that obstacle course of the ways that I don't do life good, my shortcomings that are going to get in the way of healthy relationships. I need to know those, not how strong I am or how smart I think I am. Hmm. There, I was listening to a lot of your, your solo recordings this week. And to tell everybody out there, they can get all that on Spotify or Apple Music, anywhere yeah. that they, they stream music. There's the 
the latest EP, Remember Tomorrow. Right. Remember Tomorrow, what exactly, tell us what that means to you. It is the idea that for many years in my youth and even my my 20s and 30s, I, I wanted to think that uh, I was this free spirit and that I wanted to live in today and it's all about today and I'm just living in the moment and no worries, you know, be happy. <laughs> and while that isn't the worst idea to have or way to live, that often was an excuse to put off the reality, the actual reality that what I do today is very much going to connect me to my experience tomorrow. Huh. You know, we reap and we sow. And I, I, I didn't want to have to deal with the things I was doing today affecting my tomorrow. Yet, you know, as an alcoholic, I drank every night to access saying, oh, I won't have, you know, regret from this, or I had unhealthy relationships that I said, oh, I'm not going to have a guilt over these. They'll be different. And it definitely connected me with the future. I just didn't want to believe right. that. I wanted to leave it all behind. And so remember, to, tomorrow is today as I speak, as I act, I need to know that those actions are going to affect what I become tomorrow. Uh, and so I have to... Re- Today, I have to remember tomorrow. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> that's great. I was listening to the, the one single, The Love. Remind me of the title. The Love. The, uh, from the EP? Yeah, yeah. I blanked got, on the title. Uh, what is the darn, uh, yeah. Make <laughs> well, me, uh, uh, I'm, you made me think of the Christmas song that came after that called It's Love, but I don't think that's it. Uh, the song, there's uh, I See Heaven on Earth, there's I Will Bow, there's Unafraid. Yeah, yeah. There's the song that Randy Foster wrote called... Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great um, song. Revival. The Revival song. And then there's a song about Jesus. So which one is it? <laughs> it might have been a lyric. I, yeah, I right. Should've, I should have written it down, but my, what I was going to ask is, what is... The greatest example of love that you've experienced in your life? Who that I've experienced? It's simple, I think. And, but the most valuable, I think, gift of, hmm, that's a tough one. Now you made me think there. <laughs> uh, it's probably giving one's time. And so, while giving gifts or giving, uh, assistance in other ways materially is can be helpful. I think the gift of giving somebody your time to say, I'm just going to be here with you for the thing that you need. I mean, giving honesty, probably right up there. Mm. You know, telling people the truth is probably the one of the hardest things to do. And we can really gift someone uh, a, a wonderful present when we're honest with them. And so honestly giving your time, I think that works. It, it's something I didn't want to have to invest in. It's also the hardest to give because hmm. while my words can be many and they can, I can think they're so uh, you know amazing. Uh, I'll tell you what to do, or I can give you some advice, or uh, maybe even give you a compliment. Uh, I don't think those are as worthy of giving your time. Hmm. It's easier to ramble on and tell people what you know or whatever, but for me. Sitting down and actually giving your time to help somebody else is the more difficult and the more valuable. Hmm. Wow.
Well, you mentioned a moment ago the song A Little Revival. Yes. And kind of has a country feel to it just a little bit, I think. It's an outside song, right? That's that's what I get when I try and make my own out of a song that was written by country guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was wondering, given Darius Rucker's country career, has that influenced you in any way? Or ha- you mentioned these southern rock guys, but has country music ever influenced you? Certainly country has influenced me. Uh, we... So Southern Rock in my uh, upbringing, and then when I moved to Columbia, South Carolina, uh, for whatever reason, it wasn't because I was in the South necessarily, but I, we, I had just little access to music. And one of the couple cassettes we had, me and my one of my older brothers, was these David Allen Co. cassettes, two of his great albums from the '70s, and and um, David Allen Co. Rides Again, and uh, though David Allen Co. is a sketchy figure i'm afraid <laughs> he's a little bit of an oddball i admire him for his musical talents but we only had a little bit of music to listen to and so i started listening to these and i also had uh, my brothers were listening to a little bit of country growing up and it would have been country of the 60s and 70s i didn't like it when i was a kid and i heard it on the radio i thought it was old timey but once i dug into it a little deeper and heard the Mer- old merle haggard stuff and, and then david allen co and then Hank Williams Jr., who leaned into rock and roll and blues as well as country. Uh, it opened up a great door for me, and I always had an appreciation for that folky, simple music. Um, so I was listening in the 80s, and then it led to prime country. So I was hugely influenced in my Hootie songwriting by guys like George Strait and Travis Tritt and Alabama and Garth Brooks. These are the songs. This is what I was bringing into our long uh, journeys in a van with Hootie and the Blowfish as we drove around from club to club from 1989 to 1994. And that's the stuff that I was like uh, putting my band through. Everybody in the band in the van would play play their own music. We had a CD player finally. And so if you drove, you got to control the music. So on these long stretches, it might be Darius being the DJ, or Dean, or Mark, or me. <laughs> and so country for me was always there, absolutely. And uh, I think it did influence, you know, I was listening to prime country when I wrote Hold My Hand. I don't think it's a stretch to say if you put Travis Tritt or somebody else behind that, it's not, it's authentic. It would sound sincere. And uh, some of the other stuff that gets cut on the Hootie albums that weren't hit singles, uh it was the same. It was always that sort of poppy chorus, a little bit leaning into the cheesy uh, metamorph- metam- uh, lyrics that are like metaphors for life, you know. And so, yeah, and Darius had his own brand of country that he liked listening to as well. And it was a little more of a, like the Nancy Griffith and mm. Radney Foster, alt country maybe. Right. It was what he appreciated more in that time. Uh, and then, yeah, but nobody saw him ending up in that genre for sure, but it's authentic for him. I mean, he likes folk and country and bluegrass and that authentic heart of America music. Hmm. So Interesting stuff. I was listening to or watching the interview you did on the Dan Patrick show, and you talked about the, the playing of uh, being on the Letterman show. Yeah. As a particularly... I'm hoping you can tell us just maybe one other moment real quick... Uh, a moment where you just thought, I, should I pinch myself? I can't believe 
what I'm getting to do right now. <laughs> do you have one? I mean, Letterman is right there. And <laughs> it, uh, it was our first time on TV. And it was the biggest TV show of that period. And you know that there are millions of viewers that are about to hear your three-and-a-half-minute ditty. And that enormity, and I write about it in the book a little bit, too, about what went through my head. We're sitting on a stage that 30 years earlier, the year of my birth, 1964, the Beatles sat on that stage playing I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, my God. No pressure. You're here. The lead light, the red lights on the cameras pop on, the audience calms. And here's a song we had played four or five hundred times. Yet it feels like the most foreign thing I'm, I could ever do. How are we going to do this? It's nervy. Oh. And on top of it, the, the studio up there is freezing. It's, you know, it's yeah. a cold studio and the, the audience is distanced and David Letterman's over in the corner. There's nothing in my favor to make me feel comfortable other than uh, the fact that we had performed it many, many times before. And that all went to the back of my mind, unfortunately. <laughs> that's, that's great. So I always like to end the show. I like to give the guest the, the microphone, so to speak. It's an incredibly open-ended question. We just never know who's listening. We never know who's watching. We hear from people in England all over. For that person who's with us right now, totally open-ended, what would you say to them? You have the floor. Hmm. <laughs> well, since I know I am a self-centered, fearful, egoic, prideful person in my core, that's always the first place I reach. So my first thing would be download my new single. Go to Spotify, stream my new... <laughs> my new song that's usually the thing i go to is what can i promote while there's a camera or a person in front of me but sure uh that's that is more my nature and as business has entered my art many years ago it's always the thought of how can i get more people to listen or now read a book so i always you know my always i always lean into go read my book go go listen to a song and see if it inspires you uh, i like what i create I want more people to hear it, of course, uh, and so I always will. I will lean into a quick, shameless self-promotion to say, "Go pick up Swimming with the Blowfish," or "Go uh, go pick up uh, Remember Tomorrow," and and see what you think. See if you're inspired by it. Nothing wrong with that, and it's jimsonafeld.com, right? That's my website. There's some good info on there. My Facebook page is always fun to uh, peruse to see what I'm up to where I'm coming from and where I'm going to. It's a little more fluid. And then even my Instagram page is uh, fun because you get the sort of some fun day-to-day stuff behind the scenes. A little family, a little what I did last night or hmm. uh, what I'm doing today. So I like to stay connected in that way. Yeah, Spotify is the other way to find me. One more quick question. What is the best thing about being Jim Sonnefeld? For me today, in the year 2022, it's the best thing is I know what peace is. I do know how to find it. It's not always easy to grasp because it requires something of me. <laughs> but I know what peace is, and I'm so happy to be, even be alive and to have been uh, gone through 50-some years and, and recovery and some hard lessons to find it out. But I know 
peace is available for me. I know serenity is there. I can't demand it 24-7 because life happens, you know. Mm. Life is not always fair or just. So we get dealt bad cards. But I know how to find peace, I'm telling you. And uh, I'm thankful for that today because, you know, what else, what else are we looking for? Hmm. Well, Jim, thanks for visiting with us. Great to connect with you. Thank you for your time. And for your time. You know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you, listeners, viewers. Please go to thepaulleslie.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you're there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who contributes. Videography and editing by David Knapp. Performance of The Entertainer intro song by John Primerano. And of course, this is your announcer speaking. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.